1757 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined this morning by friend of the podcast, MLB Network Radio, and D-Backs Radio star, Mark Farron. Mark Farron. Wow. Wow, that's a throwback. Had you been planning that one? No, I'm just very <laughs> tired, Mike. <sighs> Oh, that's a good one. Well, it's a good way to start. Good morning. Good morning. I I made you wake up early to record this because some (laughs) of us get up at 5 a.m. during the week. And so, like, (laughs) we have no problem being up at Adam at 9 o'clock on a Sunday. So here we are. Here we are. Well, I appreciate both uh, your willingness to come on the show (laughs) and your willingness to stay. After loving your name. <laughs> it's okay. It's a you know, it's a, a long standing joke back from a podcast I used to host where everybody <laughs> called me Mark, so it just it works. There you go. Mike, thanks for joining me. Hey, I, I'm happy to take over Fangraphs audio this week. <laughs> yeah, you you've been doing some some heavy lifting for us. You'd so think I had a book or something to promote, but yeah. no, that's not the case. <laughs> I'm just Buddy Hackett. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Um, we're gonna answer some listener emails in the back half of the show, and even do a stat blast. But before we do that, we have some division series to talk about. And my understanding is that you uh, you were away for part of this, so you are the perfect person to talk about. <laughs> I mean, I clearly was paying attention. We we took we took an overnight trip up on Friday, Saturday to go up to Monument Valley, which I highly recommend. It's where, if you're not familiar with the Southwest, that's where like all the John Ford Westerns were sh- shot, you know, the yeah. searcher stagecoach. And there's actually a hotel right on uh, in Navajo Nation that's right up against it. And so the view from our hotel room was of the Mittens and Merrick Butte. Like it was insane. Like I can't wait to go back. It was, it was just like the best 24 hours. But of course I paid attention to what was going on and got sure. to watch a good chunk of the games because hey that's my job well and you also you also did a a little baseball on the radio which must make you feel right at home right yeah that's basically i mean listen i like listening to baseball on the radio so that's i'm a throwback in that regard or what do we call it now we don't we don't call them radio and tv anymore it's audio and video right that's the way the that's what i've been told that the kids are learning in the colleges now is audio and video Audio and video in pursuit of content. Well, <laughs> on our last episode, I previewed the AL Division Series with Eric Longenhagen, and we held off on the NL just for, for time. And we're, we're happy to have you because you have seen just a great deal of NL baseball this year, given your job, and in particular, a lot of the Dodgers and the Giants. So I guess my first question for you, Mike, is going into that series between two teams that have won more than 100 games, what were your expectations for LA and San Francisco and the NLDS they might give us? I mean, I, th- I think outside of uh, the final and actually seeing the Giants maybe make a base running mistake yesterday, I think it was going to be pretty tight. Yeah. You know, I, I think the Giants are a fascinating team, and I've talked plenty about it this year in, in multiple platforms in that they just always seem to have the platoon advantage, right? They yeah. always seem to have it both from a pitching and from a, a, an offensive side. And so I think, you know, they, they've been able to win a lot of margins that way, whereas I don't think that they're they're from a true talent level, they're as deep as the Dodgers are, even though this isn't, and I would add the caveat that I don't think this is quite as deep a Dodger team as we've seen right. in the postseason over the last, you know, three years at least. So I, I don't think that they necessarily have the same level of talent, but I think their execution is outstanding. And, you know, Wilmer Flores, poor base running decision aside last night, they generally don't beat themselves on defense, right. on the base paths. Um, and I think they've done a really good job of, of, 
getting the matchups that they want at the key times that they want them. And so that, that to me, has been really the giant story this year and, and why they were able to not just stay with L.A., but but actually beat them in the end. And, you know, and add in that you get a bunch of guys that have 90th percentile projections <laughs> that, that, yeah. that they had, and all of a sudden, like, that leads to a, a team that probably is more middle of the pack from, from a projection standpoint, ending up with 107 wins. Yeah, they've been an interesting team to watch. I've talked about this a fair amount on on our podcast, but you know, they they seem as if given how greatly they defied preseason expectations, as if, you know, you'd look at their underlying stats and say, "Oh, there's, you know, there's a lot of smoke here. This isn't a, a team that's actually as good as this." And I think you're right that they from a true talent perspective don't really match the Dodgers, but they aren't you know, they're not a mirage either, right? They're right. they're a very good team, I think, for the reasons that you uh, stated. And I think you're right about the Dodgers. You know, you look at this lineup going into last night, and they're without Max Muncy. Um, presumably, he will be able to, or hopefully, he'll be able to rejoin them later in the postseason should they advance. But it, you know, required Cody Bellinger to go back to first base. I want to ask about him in particular as someone who got to see him in person this year. Just what you attribute his his struggles to, because it, it seems like it can't just be the injury, right? You looked at some of the at-bats he had last night, and it reminded me a lot of some of his early postseason runs in mm-hmm. you know those great early years where it's just like he can't lay off back foot breaking stuff, and the approach seems all out of whack. So what has been your experience of Cody Bellinger this season? I, I mean, I think there's a couple things that are at play. I do think the injuries have had an impact, because remember, yeah. he had pretty significant shoulder surgery coming into the year and then he broke his leg right and now he's playing with a broken rib so there's there's been a few things that have impacted him I think the other thing is that in searching to close up some of his holes over the course of the last several seasons I think he has opened up some more to him and the best comp I can come up with is Jason Hayward you know Mm -hmm. you think about Hayward in his early career with the Braves he was a really dynamic, powerful offensive force. And I think he heard the chirping about the strikeouts and tried to do a little bit too much to change it as opposed to just being who he is. And I think with and now you end up with this this hitter who just looks uncomfortable every time he steps in the box. I, I don't, you know, he tries to make himself smaller, tries to use the whole field. I mean, I think a lot of, and listen, Hayward is still has, I think he has the talent to be able to be impactful. It just hasn't, whatever changes he's made hasn't allowed to find a level of consistency like what we saw when he first burst on the scene with Atlanta. And I think there's something with that with Bellinger. I think at times he has gotten away from using the athleticism that he has to really impact a game. And, and that's, that was, it started a couple of years ago when he made some, you know, pretty major setup changes. And then he, then yeah. he had a really good year. And then, you know, last season was a, was disastrous, but he just never looked comfortable. His timing looked off. You know, I think his swing is always going to have a tendency to get long just because of, you know, he's got long arms, but yeah. He just is like, it never seems like he is in sync. And I wonder how much he just needs to go take a deep breath, 
go for a walk, go, go spend <laughs> a couple of, you know, maybe go camp out a couple of nights <laughs> in the desert. Monument Valley. Yeah. Valley. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. I was, I was going <laughs> to say even closer, like you can go up to Scottsdale and walk through the parks and, and <laughs> just like kind of clear his head on it because there's a lot more in there. I mean, even, you know, the double he hit last night. Now, granted it was a fastball that was what middle away. And, yeah. you know, with his length, that's probably going to be a little bit easier pitch for him to get to. But I think that there are still enough things that he does well that he can get that back. But he, it has to be frustrating for him and for Dodgers fans to see somebody who is this supremely talented struggle like he has this year and last. Yeah, I think it's hard when a guy has literally been an MVP to not feel some amount of frustration when this is the result you have, even when you're conscious of the effect that the injuries might be having right. on him. Yeah, I, I liked this this note from Fabian Ardaya's game story last night that he turned around that 95-mile-an-hour fastball and it was just the third time all season that he had done that for an extra base hit and just his ninth hit period. So, <laughs> and when you look at the rest of his evening, he has that great hit, but then his three strikeouts look exactly like the strikeouts that we've seen for him. So I don't know that we can walk away from this thinking that he's fixed, but it has to feel good to kind of get the monkey off your back a little bit if you're Cody Bellinger. Yeah, I mean, I thought he had better at bats in the the wild card game. Yeah, you know, I thought that there were some there were some moments down the stretch where you know, everybody's kind of grasping it, trying to figure out how to get Bellinger right. So when he goes, what, six for 12 or something like that over the last week or, or whatever it was, or six for 18, I think it was something like that, you know, but still with half a dozen strikeouts, like you're, you're like, well, there's some, there's some growth in there. At least he's, you know, at least he's putting the ball in play some, but it just doesn't like, it doesn't feel like he has been in sync at all. Now that said, he wasn't last year for the 2020 season either. Right. And then he was pretty good in the playoffs. So, you know, there, there's, there's some of this is sample sizing. I think some of it is the injuries. I think some of it is maybe some over adjustments. But in the end, like he's a guy that you have to worry about in the lineup because, yeah, you can pitch to him. But if you make a mistake, he has more talent than a lot of other guys. And so you he can burn you. So it's and, and you know, listen, with the injuries that they, they've had, and I think the Muncie one is significant. I mean, yeah. I, I just as big as the injury was for for the, the Giants and losing Brandon Bell, and that was yeah. a significant injury. I think they're better equipped to handle that because of the way their roster is constructed than with the Dodgers and losing Muncie. Muncie is a really tough out. Like he doesn't yeah. get enough credit for being as selective as he has. I mean, yeah. that guy just never seems to chase a pitch out of the strike zone and it's frustrating to watch. So, you know, if they can get anything out of Bellinger, you know, having that guy who has that kind of talent can help to fill some of that, even if you're not necessarily counting on it. Right. Yeah. It's it's funny to to think of the Dodgers famously deep and, and worried that they're not going to be able to sort of counter with matchups what the Giants do. But it does have that feel of, you know, Muncie just being so much better. It's also strange to look <laughs> at a lineup that has Betts, Seager, both Turners and Will Smith mm-hmm. and say, oh, gosh, I don't know, man. <laughs> Are they going to be able to sort it out? But I think it is a testament to just how tough and out he has been and how productive he's been at the plate and how afraid we are of A.J. Pollock uh, and his postseason performance, which has been not good (laughs) until this point. So, you know, it's funny how we get obsessed over small sample sizes when it comes to October, right? Yeah, there was somebody, and I can't remember who, it was was undoubtedly a mutual friend of ours who last night was tweeting about their concern with intentionally walking Pollock ahead of the pitcher as if 
as if that was a bad decision last night, like, like pitching to AJ Pollock because of his postseason struggles. Like, did you look at AJ Pollock's season? Like, the guy had a 900 OPS. Like, right. he had an unbelievable year, right? And so, because he, you know, wasn't quite as hot over the last two weeks of the season, you're really telling me that you'd rather pitch to him in a key situation in the first inning rather than getting the the largely free pass of, of getting to the pitcher. And I get it. It burned him in the end, right? Right. Julio Arias gets a base hit, whatever. Like, there, there's nothing you can do about it at that point. But to me, that was a no-brainer decision. I mean, even with Pollock struggles, I mean, that's that's not just a bona fide major league hitter. That's a well-above-average major league hitter who's hitting in the eighth spot. So I, I I can't remember who it was that was diving into recency bias on it, but it was, it was like, wait a second, like, what? What are we doing here? Come on. I, Tighten that up. Uh, yeah, I I think that your reaction is the right one. I also can appreciate how with Pollock, you know, being slowed by the hamstring injury and his, again, I, I am not encouraging anyone to get overly fussed about postseason plate appearances. I don't think they really have any correlation year to year. I will say he has hit 167, 224, 204, and 58 postseason plate appearances for Los Angeles prior to this year. And I think that when you go, you know, 0 for 13 with 11 strikeouts in 2019, people are going to say, oh gosh, from the hamstring, it's just going to compound into his usual postseason woes. We're, we're very inclined to believe in hauntings in October, Mike. This <laughs> yes, is well, a spooky it, it, season. Tis the month. <laughs> So this series is now knotted up one-to-one. It'll go back to Los Angeles. It's sort of interesting. I love it when the NLDS is is knotted like this because it's like you're getting a fresh three-game series, right? It's like everything is new except that you have to carry over your fatigue from the first two games. And if you're the Giants, you have to deal with Max Scherzer. So yeah. I don't envy them that task. <laughs> Although Scherzer's last three starts haven't been great. Again, like yes. we, we've run into recency bias on here, right? So like maybe maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something. I mean, really, he wasn't sharp. I mean, I thought I right. thought Doc did the right the right thing in getting him when he got him in the, in the wild card game. As frustrated as Max may have been, he wasn't yes. pitching well. You no, know, that's he, where the eye test matters. Yeah, he was certain he was certainly laboring, and I I'm always surprised by how. Uh, hard we are on managers when they are over what we deem to be overly aggressive in the wild card. And I appreciate, you know, feeling nervous that you're going to burn arms for future series or that, you know, all things being equal, you just might want to stick with Scherzer. But it's just, you know, you can't worry about future use problems. Because right. future you doesn't exist if you don't get out of that game. So. What's the, 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 Stephen Goldman used to love dropping the Casey Stengel line, right? About like, why save a pitcher for tomorrow? Tomorrow it might rain. Right. And I think you've seen that like in the evolution. I've been thinking about this a lot. I realize it's not the, the National League series we're talking about, but like Tony LaRussa has this tremendous and well-earned reputation as being a, an excellent bullpen manager. You know, the last pennant he won in that championship series, his relievers recorded more outs than his starters. You know, it almost kind of started the trend of what we've seen. And yet we've seen managers be far more aggressive than him in this postseason. And the ones that you feel like you have the most confidence in in making the right decision, Kevin Cash, and last year's World Series notwithstanding. I know that that blew up a lot, but, you know, Blake Snell has pretty strong history of not going deep into games at that yeah. point. So, so like Kevin Cash, Alex Cora, Craig Council, you know, those are some of the better strategists. D- Dave Roberts, and I think Gabe's done a good job this year, too. Like, those are guys that are super, like, at the first sign of trouble, they know what the data says, they know what their eyes are telling them or what, what they feel like they, they're getting in terms of feedback, 
and they're going to make a move. I mean, and Gabe talked about it last night with with Gossman. He said the feedback, you know, he let Gossman hit for himself, right? Going yeah. into into what was it, the sixth? And that was kind of a key moment in the end because you you hoping to start a rally with the top of the lineup coming out. But he was letting the eye test help to dictate that. He was talking to Buster. He was talking to he said he was talking to Gossman. And the, the feedback was the same. He was on a roll, you know? And right. and you're on a roll until you're not. Right. I get it. But but like at the same time, like you you have to be adaptable. And so was he slow on the trigger there? I wouldn't say that necessarily, although I, I do like playing for offense in the National League game. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that, especially if you have a deep bullpen like the Giants have. But at the same time, like you're you're letting the situation dictate what's going on. And I think some of these these managers are really, really good at this now. And and it's not, you know, Alex Cora pulling Eduardo Rodriguez after nine batters in game one was a brilliant strategy. It didn't end yeah. up working out because their offense couldn't get going against Tampa Bay, but he was spot on with it. Right. You know, like he got him out of there and Pavetta pitched really well. Right. And we saw we saw sort of the the version of that that works in the next in the very next game, right? Where Sale was struggling. Mm-hmm. They pulled him in favor of Hauk. And then in addition to him being able to cruise, they actually scored some runs. And you saw like what happens when a team that has to deal with a lineup that hits lefties really well tries to mitigate that advantage, right? right. So yeah, I think that people will look back on that move and perhaps second guess it. But like you said, like he had you know, since he had almost been pinch hit for with Tommy Lister back in the second he had retired like nine straight batters and you know he had seemed to settle in and have better control than he had had in the first two innings he was working his slider pretty well which had been sort of absent for him for long mm-hmm. stretches so i don't know i i i think that you always have to worry about the dodgers like putting four runs up on you but um yeah. it, di- it didn't strike me as particularly egregious uh, although i wouldn't have had an issue with kapler pulling him in favor of his bullpen either i don't know it must be st- being a major league manager doesn't seem like a fun job a lot of the time. Well, no, but I mean, it, it's, you know, heavy lies the crown, right? right? So you so if your players execute, you look like a genius. If they right. don't, whether, you know, process, result, you know, we're only concerned about the results in the aftermath, but the process that goes into it doesn't matter. Right. And, I, and I think in the end that most of – most managers get way too much crap for the way that they manage games. I mean, I really do. Because in the end, it comes down to execution. And it's a lot easier to blame the manager's decision when a decision is made in hindsight than it is to look at the execution of the pitchers. And the odds are overwhelming at this point that the that most managers, if not all of them, have a significant amount of information that is helping them make their decisions for them. Yeah. That that are the right decisions. But but we're still dealing with probability. Right. And, and and the thing about probability is, it, I mean, I probably don't need to tell a Fangraphs audience this, but <laughs> but it means that things are probable to happen. It doesn't mean that it's definite. So, you know, or do I need to tell a Fangraphs audience that? I think that our readers have not been the issue when it comes to understanding our playoff odds. <laughs> but it's probably not the worst to remind folks of these sorts of things. Do you think that Adam Wainwright maybe just didn't have a full grasp of how this works? I think that he was at least partially kidding. I'm sure he was. Yeah. You know, he doesn't strike me as a, a dense guy. You know, I think he's he seems pretty sharp, at least, you know, when he's been in the booth. I've been I've been pretty happy with his approach to calling games, which he is, I think witty. is Yeah, I think is it tends to be a, a good indicator of how people think about these things. And, you know, like I said, 
I need all sorts of motivation to get through like a day where I'm sitting at my desk editing stuff. So I can only imagine what it's like to go through a 162 games log and the things that you might pin up as bulletin board material. You know, it's, I don't know. It, the whole thing seemed a little silly, but we we do take the opportunity to educate and correct the record when it is given to us. So, well, I do think I do think that one of the things that was that is really great about that was the number of people who retweeted it as if like, see, you can't trust the projections. The the number of writers who had written the Cardinals off as well, you know, right. like but no admission to that. Like I wrote the Cardinals off. I've yeah. been pretty open about that. Like I yeah. didn't think they had a prayer in hell. Yeah. They really didn't until they won seventeen in a row. Yeah, but like that which that tends to help. <laughs> you know, like so so that yeah. that's the difference maker in it. But yeah, no, that's that's yeah. I, I, I thought Wayno was funny. I thought. Funny. Yeah. So now this Dodgers Giants series, like I said, we'll go back to Los Angeles. Max Scherzer will take on Alex Wood as the game three starter. Our odds uh, are Zips game by game odds uh, and series by series odd, courtesy of Dan Zimborski, have the Dodgers as 57.9% favorites hmm. uh, to advance to the NLCS. Although, as you said, these things can shift around because probabilities are only that probable. But one series that is much closer in terms of our projections for its possible outcome is the NLDS between the Braves and the Brewers. I think that we saw sort of the platonic ideal of how these teams want to navigate the postseason in each of their wins, and they just happened to trade them off. So poor Charlie Morton on the on the back end of getting burned despite a strong start in game one, and then Brandon Woodruff sort of answering in game two. Now we will have this series shift to Atlanta with Ian Anderson and Freddie Peralta. I want to start with the Brewers. What are are your impressions of this Brewers team? Because I picked them to win the World Series because, I don't know, I like to be feisty. And then I was reminded of just how light their offense can be at times. Well, I think, I mean, I think you have to give a little bit of credit to Charlie Morton in game one, too. Yes. I mean, he's, you know, this, is a, this has been one of the better pitchers in, in yep. the majors for the last half dozen years. And I think that the, the Braves rotation has been a little bit overlooked because it's not the names we were anticipating right. necessarily, right? So you know, Max Fried has been great. And you know, Ian Anderson, who's who's pitching game three, has been outstanding. But the Brewers offense built some pretty big innings against yeah. the the bullpen. They just didn't cash them in. And yeah. I thought that that to me was going to be the difference in this series. I think you saw a little bit different stylistically between the two managers too in the way that Craig Council handled game one. I don't think there's a better tactician right now in baseball than Craig Council yeah. as far as a manager goes. But using Peralta and Hauser in the, those key spots because he doesn't have Devin Williams or right. Brett Suter. Like, I think that's where the advantage comes from Milwaukee on the pitching side is that they're, they're going to have more arms deployable out of the bullpen and they're treating every game is a must win, which I really appreciate because that's that should be the way you treat playoff games is that you have to empty the tank every single night because you 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 only are ever playing two or maybe three games in a row. So get after it, win today, and then you don't have to worry as much about tomorrow. Let the chips fall where they may. You're right that the offense is a little bit a little bit thinner, but it, but it's not like Atlanta has had a huge offensive series. What they've no. had four runs scored, and Atlanta's not a crazy on base lineup. They have you know I think if you attack them with right-handers, which is what the Brewers will continue to do, for the most part, you can have success against them. You know, Duvall will run into some and hit some long home runs and is a, you know, a pretty good down lineup hitter. I think Solaire's made some adjustments, which make him a little tougher to pitch to, but he's still pitchable to, especially right. from righties. Like even Albies is 
not as good from the left side as he is the right by by a fairly wide margin. So I think that that you don't need to have like this isn't going to be a, a series. I don't think where you're going to have like an eleven ten game at all. So no. you need just enough offense. And you're right, the the Brewers might be a bit thin in that because of the, the season that Yelich has had. But yeah. I think they have enough. I really do. I like. I, I felt like watching them through most of the summer from the time they got Adamas, and then you know when, when they had a healthy Rowdy Telez, which they seem to have now. Yes. You know with Telez and and Eduardo Escobar against lefties, like it, it's helped to balance out that line. Up some, and I think that they're. I think they're a little bit underappreciated. You know, Avisel Garcia had a really good year. I mean, he had yeah. twenty nine home runs, and so like I think they're a little bit better than people realize. But I think that the first two games, you have to give a lot of credit to to specifically Morton and Freed for yeah. shutting them down. What's it? What's it like for you to get to watch someone like Escobar get a get a postseason shot? You know, I he's know, like my favorite player. Ever, yeah, right? and and he was quite beloved in Arizona. Oh, God. Um, so what what is what is that like for you as a broadcaster? I imagine a little bittersweet, but mostly happy. I'm just so happy for him. Like yeah. he's legitimately like just an absolutely wonderful person. I mean, I remember when they made the trade for him, talking to some of the front office guys, and they were like, "Listen, we d- they did their typical digs on the makeup. Like, how does he get along with people in the clubhouse? What's oh, he yeah. like off the field? Like doing all this stuff, right?" And they were like, "We're not sure we've ever had a guy that's come back with with like no negatives. Like there are no red flags to him. Yeah, he's a tremendous person. Like he was so involved in the Phoenix community. Yeah. Um, the people in in community relations talked about how they'd never had a player who was willing to volunteer." tier to the level that he had to just like basically every day he was like, give me something else to do. I want to help someone else out. I really felt like he should have won the Clemente Award a couple of years ago because he, his level of dedication is spectacular to helping out. So this is the kind of person he is. And then like the energy you see on the field, the ha- the, the happy-go-lucky, the, the fun- I mean, like he's overcome a lot in his life and his career. I mean, he nearly got released out of the complex leagues by the White Sox. Ozzie yeah. Guillen had to go to bat for him. So I couldn't be more thrilled for Escobar. I hope he, we were watching yesterday and we had gotten home and you know he comes up with a couple men on and I looked at my wife and I said, oh, God, I hope he hits a three-run home. Here. Like, and it's nothing against the Braves. I'm not picking on the Braves, but just like, I want to see Escobar have that big moment because I think so highly of Escobar. Yeah. And just like a willingness to, you know, when you go to a new team, a willingness to do what's necessary from a lineup perspective. I know he's been playing first base for Milwaukee a good amount after mostly being on the other side of the infield uh, the last couple of years. So he just seems like he's he's game to do what he needs to to try to help the team win and has Absolutely. been a worthy addition to that squad. Like I said, our playoff odds, our game by game odds have this quite tight Braves 50.2 percent favorites so basically a tie between the two teams as you said we'll have ian anderson going against freddie peralta and then you know against adrian hauser and then if we need a game five uh, we pivot back to morton and burns at the top of things i didn't make you make a prediction in in dodgers giants but i will ask you to do one here who do you have uh taking this series and advancing you know, I have I have not had to make any predictions at all this postseason, oh. so I really appreciate you putting me on the spot. <laughs> well, you can you can uh, duck out of this one if you want, but I'm going to make you predict White Sox Astros then, and we will know <laughs> by the end of the day whether or not you were right. No, I, I actually I, I, I like the Brewers in the series. I, I have, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I I thought early on they were a team that had a chance to to go to the World Series. I think they got over I think even without Williams, I mean I think yeah. we had a tendency probably as 
because he is such an important reliever to overstate the impact that he could have on a series, especially with as many arms and as creative as Craig Council is. So I just like their pitching a little bit better, especially as you get later into the game than Atlantis. Now that said, I know Boxberger, you know, worked around some trouble the other night, like Brad Boxberger can be homer prone and that's yeah. not, I don't think he's a great matchup on Milwaukee side for the Atlanta hitters. Yeah. So like, that's something to circle in the series to keep an eye on. But I really think that, I, I think in the end, the Brewers win it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes five. I mean, I, I'd be shocked at this point if it didn't go the distance. Boxberger is one of those guys who, you know, when you encounter a player at a particular moment in their career can color your expectations for them going forward. And I remember watching him throw at like a driveline pro day a couple of years ago. I think he had been released and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, Brad Boxberger is just like, wash, he's done now. And then he was like, no, I'm not. Well, <laughs> Sorry. the, the cutter's Sorry, a lot better. I'm like watching, <laughs> yeah. him, watching him yesterday, that cutter that he's throwing is a way better pitch than it ever was. And he's using it, I, I would guess, more. I haven't looked at the data on it to, to back it up, but you know he was always fastball changeup and he's got a right. really, really good changeup, but he's throwing more consistently in the mid nineties and then adding that cutter to it. I mean, I think that's what's made him effective. He's always been a guy that's been in the strike zone. So, you know, walks aren't necessarily an issue with him or generally haven't been an issue, but I, I think that cut fastball that he has now is it just, it's just enough of a difference and he throws it really flipping hard that, that I think it, it, it has made a big difference, in, at least in my estimation, as to what Boxberger has done. Yeah. It answers the question of why did this happen? And then we will shift to the American League. I'll remind everyone we're recording on Sunday morning, so by the time folks listen to this, um, at least one of these series might be uh, decided. Um, so let's start with Houston and Chicago. And I guess the way I'll just ask this is, did you expect better from this series? Because I kind of expected better from this series. I kind of did. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of did. You know, but but there was something. So we had, uh, I'll name drop here. We had AJ Hinch on. And he's working as one of our, our postseason analysts for us on our show. And we were talking the other day about the White Sox. And, and one of the things that he pointed out was that they will give up a free 90 feet here yeah. and there. And... I think the defense has been a huge impact yeah. in this series so far. So between Grandall not able to block a pitch in game one and then Mancata's decision to try and throw home to get Altuve, which led really to a couple of runs in that frame, or to Lurie Garcia, who's not really a right fielder, getting turned around twice on a ball over his head on um, Saturday, Friday. Friday. What day is it? Um, <laughs> in game two. Um, Purple. You know, I think I think those were a couple of things. They've had some weird things that have happened defensive positioning wise, which I can't believe are because they've done a poor job of of positioning their defenders so much as that's that's baseball, Susan. But like they've right. had a couple of that, and they've certainly had base runners, despite the fact that they're this pretty high ground ball offense. I mean, they they really they put together some late rallies in game one. Um, they seemed like they had a ton of traffic in game two and just weren't able to cash it in. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised from it. I kind of agree with Tony LaRusso's assessment that they that they played better than what the result ended up being in game two, but yeah, yeah I mean, their, their backs are against it. And I was really hoping this one was going to push to the limit, but man, is Houston's offense good or what? Like, you just yeah. keep getting reminded. Yeah, it's and I think, you know, especially in game one, it was just like a particularly bad matchup for Lance Lynn when you look at mm. what he is most likely to throw and then 
then what Houston is able to do with fastballs. It was just like a recipe for disaster for them. I I think that I expected more out of Chicago's bats than we have seen. And I don't say that to, to knock the Houston starters who I think have been quite good, but it is just when you have that entire lineup whole and healthy, which they were not able to do for most of this year, you know, they have impact bats up uh, all up and down that lineup. And we just really haven't seen them be able to string together rallies so double play prone my goodness so that series potentially concludes today with dylan cease and luis garcia on the mound if it should go to four we're expected to see michael kobach and jose urquidy but uh, like you said chicago's up against it we have houston 85.9 percent favorites uh to to win this series right now I I don't like this matchup for the White Sox either. Just with I, I mean yeah. I think they'll be okay against Luis Garcia. Although he's he's a guy that's worth watching. I think. I mean I don't know. Have you seen him much this year? Because the little I have has been pretty impressive. Yeah, he's. Um, I think that he is. He is quite quite good. Um, he ranked in Ben Clemens and Kevin Goldstein's trade value series in a way that I think people at the time thought was unusually high, given how little major league experience he has. But he's been quite impressive for them. I agree, though. I think that you know that <laughs> I don't know that I'd feel great about my season coming down to like what version of Dylan Cease you're getting. Yeah. That would make me nervous. <laughs> Against this lineup in particular. Yeah. You know, like, I think that they will make him work. Now, yes. C certainly has the most overwhelming stuff. Incredible. Yeah, I think that that's, I think, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's a little bit of a concern today. Yeah, I think that he can be dominant he can also have long stretches where the the control and command are just not there and against a lineup that is patient and doesn't strike out as much as you might expect given what we tend to expect of potent offenses these days i think it could end up being a long day for them if he's not able to dial it in and what happens you know like we're just talking about the the managerial decisions does tony go with him one hitter too late or does he make the adjustment and get him out one hitter too early you know, like right. that, I would rather that at this point. I mean, they, they should have crochet cope. You know, I know they haven't really named a starter for game four. Like they should have all hands on deck or anybody who's capable of pitching because yeah. it's an elimination game. So right. how does Tony manage it? Does he try and let him work out of jams or the first sign of trouble? Is he on to the next guy and then to Rodon? Like that, I think, is really fascinating, too, because he could he could really upset Houston's offense a little bit by using a lot of different pitchers today. Right. Yeah, I I think, you know, it's so interesting because I think our impression of him coming into the year was that he might, um, just by virtue of how long it had been since he had managed, not be super up on how modern bullpens are deployed despite having been aggressive with them in prior postseason series. And then you look at this, this White Sox bullpen and it seems pretty mistake proof right because it's just so dominant top to bottom but you do have to pull the lever at the right time still so yeah it'll be curious to see how that ends up going for them what was your reaction to his comment about craig kimbrell in the setup role did you see that one i read it in james fegan's article basically like like listen he's had to adjust to something that he's not done and he hasn't been comfortable with and i keep thinking like well william hendrick's has no problem coming in with men on base if that's yeah. an issue, right? Like, so why yeah. don't you just flip them? Like, I know that Kimbrel hasn't thrown the ball all that well, or the results haven't been all that good from from you know since the trade to the White Sox. But yeah. like, like, okay, so if you know that's an issue, like, why haven't you adjusted it? That's a big question I have. Yeah, I I found that remark curious. Also, I mean, I imagine that the answer he would give is probably that because he has not been as effective since coming over from the Cubs, that he's just been nervous to. Mm 
put him in high leverage spots, but that answer doesn't really hold for me because they've had this division in hand. Like if you're, if any team's able to tinker and kind of see if an adjustment in how you're deploying guys works, you'd think it would be Chicago, right? Because right. it's not like they were really worried about anyone behind them. So yeah, I found I found that answer curious too. I never know how much credence to give the idea of role. I think that analytic types, we tend to maybe underestimate the degree to which comfort matters for guys. I think it matters some, but you would think that, I don't know. I, it's like well, I think if you have comfort, if a guy has comfort in a specific role, then that should weigh more heavily in the decision, right? Like that that's the thing is like if if that's really an issue for Craig Kimbrell, right. then that should be a much more driving force than somebody like Liam Hendricks who doesn't give a, a damn yeah. what inning he pitches in. He just <laughs> wants to to yell and scream and get outs, right? So like so that that's fine. It doesn't make Craig Kimbrell lesser or more or anything like that. Just adapt to the personnel that you have. Yeah. I also think that Liam Hendricks should just be mic'd for every single game he He's appears the best. in. Kind it's incredible. That guy so much. <laughs> My patience for that tends to be limited because it can it can be kind of gimmicky after a while. But um, you know him him being mic'd up and not realizing his mic was working in the All Star game remains a a twenty twenty one highlight as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that was that was the good stuff. It's like just pay the fines, man. Let the dude swear on the mound. This is great TV. <laughs> And then, you know, we will we will shift to to Tampa and Boston. They are also knotted up 1-1. We talked a little bit about how Alex Cora sort of deployed his starters and bullpen already. I will admit that when Tampa hit a grand slam to pull ahead of Boston and Sale didn't didn't make it to the second inning, I was like, oh no, Boston might be on its way to an early exit here. Mm-hmm. But having righted the ship uh, and getting to return to Fenway, uh, what are what are your expectations for the Red Sox here? Yeah, I it's a I don't know I I don't right. know what to expect of them. I mean, I think the best thing they have going for them is that they should have an advantage at least in the starting matchup today. Sure. I mean, Rasmussen is kind of a I mean he's got multiple pitches, but really it's his fastball that's that's important. And you would think that they're probably trying to count on him one time through and then we'll see what happens, right? So, yeah. so I think that that should give them a little bit of an advantage there and that Eovaldi has been excellent this year yeah. and, you know, he is a guy that, you know, I, I would not feel bad about counting on in this game. He pitched really well in wild card game. Like, he wants to be out there. He He's excited about it. Like, I think that's where the advantage goes. What was so interesting about about Friday to me was that we haven't seen that Red Sox offense in like what a month right, right? where they've shown up like that like they yeah. really did not finish the season well no and so like seeing them go off like that it's like okay well you know JD Martinez on one leg has four hits like is right. that is that you know something that that's a precursor of what's to come that's the thing that I, I'm kind of most curious about is, okay, how does Tampa Bay make the adjustment? Do they, they certainly have the arms that are capable of shutting down the Boston offense, but if that offense gets rolling and they're putting together quality at-bats, it could be a really long day for Tampa Bay's pitching staff. So I'm, I'm now having a really tough time handicapping the rest of this series because I just don't like – if that's the real Red Sox offense, it definitely changes my opinion on the series. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's like, and I've talked about this on the pod before, that like our impression of Tampa is one of, you know, all of these anonymous but excellent 
pitchers who are able to sort of find their way through and then just enough offense to to win. And that really hasn't been the story of this team this year, right? They've been driven by how deep and excellent that lineup has been. So in some ways, I feel more confident in their ability to sort of hang in a game where, you mm. know, Boston's bats get hot and they're able to, you know, have a night like they had on Friday. You know, when you, like you said, when you have Martinez sort of on one leg still performing the way he did when Kiki Hernandez has the night that he has, you know, you think that that's going to be an advantage to the Red Sox hitters, but it's not like this Tampa lineup is incapable of putting, you know, big rallies together. So on that score, you you kind of feel more comfortable with the Rays. But I think that when you look at the personnel that they have coming out of that bullpen, despite being able to cover so many innings with just, you know, not having a rotation really at all mm-hmm. for the entire season, it isn't as quite deep or dynamic a group as we've seen from them in recent years. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I think you hit on it. Like, it's a really good offensive team. Oh, I mean, they are really good offensively. Franco changes the complexion of the lineup. Yeah. I mean, because he just does so much well at the top. And the I, I think the other advantage that, that – the Red Sox having this is that they're throwing, they're going to throw a lot of righties at them today, right. which is like lefties. Like you start looking at the numbers. Like I, this is, this is kind of my postseason prep. I, I go to, to a competitor's site, sorry, <gasps> baseball savant and pull up what their weighted on base average is for, for hitters and pitchers against right. opposite handedness. And you start looking down the list at what the Rays have, and if I can find the right window to save here, because I've turned into Jay Jaffe with 90 windows open right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Rays against left-handed pitching are like, it's, you know, Zanino has a uh, Woba well over 500. Franco's is over 400. You know, they're, they're, they're like sixth best guy against righty, against lefties is Manuel Margot, who's at right. a 326. Yeah. You know, so like you've got all of these, you're seven, or seventh best. So like you've got seven, you've got four dominant hitters against le- yeah. lefties, one really good one in Yandy Diaz, and two pretty damn good ones in Mejia and Margot that you have as options. So like to me, it's it's a big challenge to pitch to them be, with his, any left-handers because of that. And that I think that does complicate things a little bit for Alex Cora today, but his best relievers are right-handed. You know, Brazier seems to be a guy that he really trusts, so I wouldn't be surprised if he's a guy with men on base in a big spot early in the game. And, you know, we'll just kind of see how they they play it from there. But I, I don't like the matchup quite as well for them against Eovaldi as I would have against, you know, against the lefties that they have seen in that series. And it makes yeah. me wonder, too, like, what does he do with Eduardo Rodriguez and Chris Sale the rest of the way, right? Right. Because, because that's not an advantage for them. No, yeah. Well, we're guaranteed to have at least one more after this, so we'll have time to see them try to answer those questions. I think, Mike, are you ready to do some emails? I'm ready. I've never been more ready for anything. All right, so let's let's go through some emails here. Our first one comes from Christian, who's a Patreon supporter. Thank you, Christian, who says, Hey, all, I'm listening to episode 1752 and just heard a listener's question about subtracting a strike for every ball thrown. I have an alternate idea that I believe would serve a similar purpose, but also speed up the game. What if we had two zones? So basically, you have the strike zone, just like now, but then outside of that, there'd be the one ball zone. I imagine that it would be maybe a couple of inches wide at most. Now, anything that is outside of that zone would count as two balls, incentivizing pitchers to be wary of throwing junk and staying closer to the strike zone and also speeding up at bats. So, Mike, do you think that Christian is right? Would this speed up the game? Would this incentivize offense? 
I, I just the first reaction is like, imagine how mad you're going to be at Angel Hernandez for <laughs> oh missing a one ball versus two ball call, right? Yeah, we'd have to get rid of the K zone on broadcast because if we introduce this concept and then people are able to see how far off some umps are, there are going to be riots. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know that it's gonna like I, I think it's creative. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, do, like, I don't know when you, when you're evaluating players or, or you're evaluating a matchup. I mean, do you, do you really think that that the disincentive to throw a pitch further off the plate seems to be impacting any pitcher today? It doesn't to me. I don't think that it impacts it that much. I mean, I think that the specter of giving up a, a free pass is like enough of a disincentive for pitchers to think about how they sequence pitches and where they put them. Like I I like that we keep trying to solve this problem on Effectively Wild because I think that walks are their own powerful disincentive to like not being able to command your stuff. So right. I but I think you're right that modern pitchers are like pretty content to try to do what they think they need to to induce whiffs and, and strikeouts and ground balls. So I, I don't know that this would necessarily change things all that much. I also don't think it would it would speed up the game, right? Because mm. you'd be you would end up with just a lot more traffic on the bases and even in today's game, like runs take time to score. So uh I don't imagine this speeds things up all that much. You know, as much as the three true outcomes get blamed for so much in baseball today, the the walks are actually not nearly as big an issue. I mean, yeah. I think that that's the part that I think gets my attention in this is when you start looking back and you look at what was the walk percentage this year, just over 8%, right? It's it's held fairly consistently over the last several decades. But like you start going back and say since 1960 and you look and like, like 2000 had the highest walk rate and 99, which probably makes sense because that was, you know, bonkers offensive era. But then you right. go to like 1970, which was a terrible year for offense, you know? And then like like there's only one year in the last I think the last 20 seasons there's only one year in the last 20 seasons that's in the top 19 out of that or, or two yeah. I guess there's 2020 and 2009 so like it's not like walk rate is a huge issue in the game right now that's not what's slowing it down that's not what the concern should be I think with anything that you're trying to do to improve baseball going forward the pitchers walk rates have it's held pretty consistently between seven and a half percent and nine and a half percent. Like yeah. that's that's what it is. Yeah, the sh- the shift in the uh, the complexion of offense has been has not been around walks. It's been around strikeouts, right? And right. and the concentration of offense and home runs. That's where we've seen the 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 real shift in the last couple of years. You're right. The walks are walks are just sort of humming along, modest, doing their on thing. The rise. Yeah, doing doing their thing. All right. This comes from listener Peter, who says, this question is probably too trivial to answer on the pod. Oh, no, Peter. Oh, no. <laughs> but it is something that I often wonder about when watching a game. Why all the spitting? <laughs> is it just the chewing gum, the sunflower seeds, and the boredom? Or are the spitters subconsciously mimicking the heroes from their youth? I don't mind the spitting on the field so much, and I get it after some strenuous physical activity, but I especially do not understand the spitting in the dugout. Not just over the railing onto the field, but in the dugout. That's like spitting in the office. It must be terrible to walk around in the dugout. The floor must look horrible. Yes. <laughs> Though not all pitchers seem to be into it, I don't recall seeing Otani spit. We, you know, are a 
Otani obsessed around here. But I haven't seen as much Otani as Ben. Don't feel bad, Peter. No one has. Oh, and as a bonus, <laughs> can you tell me what Rafael Devers is always chewing on? Well, you're around these guys, Mike. What's with all the spitting? What's uh, your explanation well, for spitting? First of all, I can answer that the dugout floor is disgusting, disgusting. at the end of a game. Like, it is ridiculous. Because it's not just – it's sunflower seeds. And it's gum. gum. But the biggest factor in this is it's tobacco juice. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I don't have a, a definite answer for this, but my guess would be that that's where it started from. And, yes. you know, at least when I was a kid, now I'm, I'm an old man now, but when I was young, everybody was chewing tobacco. And so that's where we started spitting was because right. they were doing it on the field. And, you know, I just don't think it's, I mean, it may not be the most sanitary thing, but like, is it, is it really worse than having a spit cup next to everybody? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that on the one hand, the dugout floor is in worse shape, but on the other hand, the the odds of spit cup related catastrophe are much lower. So that part is good. But I think the spit isn't the big dugout problem. I think it's the fact that they like, they literally, it's gum. It's gum stick. Who has to clean up the gum? Oh yeah, that's a that's a thankless task. That's There's a, a lot of gum. Task. Yeah, you know, I know that Terry Francona does a. <laughs> he has given interviews where he talks about constructing a wad of of gum and seeds and chew. Yeah, and then and then you just wonder like, what does the area in front of him on the dugout rail look like? Like it's just got to be a catastrophe, and somebody has to deal with that every day. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is like if you, if you are in charge of cleaning the dugout, I guess this is a would you rather. Would you rather it stay the same or would you rather there be a spittoon? Like, because if we're already concerned about pitchers commanding enough with a baseball in their hand, how do we feel about spittle? Yeah, well, and it's, I, I will say I'm often impressed by, you know, we should say that the rules around guys being allowed to chew uh, have changed in a lot of places i think that across the league they're not supposed to chew during games anymore although mm -hmm. they definitely still do chew during games i'm always impressed by i've noticed this with cody bellinger and i've noticed it with jose altuve you know the guys on the field who are able to spit they just spit these perfect tiny little pellets of spit it never gets stuck in their facial hair it never is on them you know they're never like oh, i got something on my face i gotta these are the things I notice. I don't know if that's useful, but no, no, it absolutely. Is as somebody who constantly has stuck in his beard? Tiny, <laughs> tiny, perfect pellets of spit that just go away. Is it a skill? Like, do they get taught how to do this? Is this a thing that boys do with each other when they're young? They practice spitting. Is this a, a, um, a thing that boys do? Yeah, I think definitely. Definitely. I mean, there's, there is definitely, like, there definitely is a loogie contingent in every middle school. Oh, yeah. So, like, and then there's contests on that. But it goes hand in hand with belching and farting. Like, it's all the things that, that are disgusting. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's definitely spitting, spitting contests, loogie contests. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Yeah, so we just we just need to practice earlier, I suppose. Okay, this this comes from this comes from Kip, another Patreon supporter. I was wondering if there could be a compromise with Robo Umps. Could we have a system where managers could be allowed three to five strike challenges a game, possibly only on the batting side to get a bad strike thrown out, and then on the pitching side, maybe one to three challenges a game. I feel like this might help some of the fears of robo-only baseball where everyone tries to hit the corners like Sergio Romo. So what do you think about the ability to challenge a discrete number of ball and strike calls in a game? Okay, well, let me, I'm going to answer it with a question for you. Did you watch any Olympic volleyball? 
I did not. I am so excited to know where you're going. So uh, <laughs> Olympic volleyball, there is a challenge system that's in place for side outs that they look at. There's a certain number that they can challenge a game. I think it's in both the beach and in the, the stadium volleyball. Okay. But it's basically that. Like it's, it's, there's, you know, like there are a handful of, you know, borderline calls that can be challenged a game and then they take a quick look at it and they make a decision. It would basically be like the same thing in New York. So it didn't seem to slow down that game terribly bad. Now maybe they have, what I don't know is do they have like the Hawkeye technology that's now in ballparks that that you know has been used in tennis for years right. um, to try and help do that. I mean, I guess they, they use something similar in competitive tennis too in the big tennis tournaments mm-hmm. with that. But I mean, it's not the worst idea in the world, but boy, that would be a really interesting strategic leverage right. play overall. Yeah. I like this idea very much. I think that Ben and I will end up being persuaded on robot umps because we're weak-willed, if nothing else. But I think that the the problem that people are trying to solve when they say, ah, give it to the robots, is precisely what you're describing, right? Like the high leverage moment where a strike is called a ball or vice versa, and it changes the entire complexion of an at-bat or potentially a game. And those moments are the ones where we really are sort of prickly about the, the human element element. Whereas I think the most of the time we're generally comfortable with thinking about the strike zone sort of probabilistically, right? That borderline pitches are sort of in a gray zone mm-hmm. and we like framing. This seems like it would be a fine compromise to me because since we have Hawkeye, you wouldn't even really have to call to New York for this, right? Like they could determine this in ballpark pretty quickly. So I don't know that it adds that much time, but it does give you sort of that that pressure valve release for instances where, you know, an ump gets it really wrong and all of a sudden, you know, a rally is killed where you should have the ability to continue the at-bat because, uh, a, you know, a called strike is is incorrect. Do you miss rhubarbs at all? Do I miss rhubarbs? Like, like umpires and, and players and managers getting into it? I like a little jawing. Because this would eliminate, like, most of the jawing, I think. If something yeah, like this were to happen. I like a little bit of the jawing. I don't like it when it escalates too terribly much, mostly because I have a weird sympathy for umpires and how hard their job is. But there are some some pretty bad offenders. I mean, like when you watched last night's Dodgers-Giants game, that, that zone was a little creative at times. Well, who was working the plate? <laughs> I can't I can't remember Mike who could say. I don't think it would eliminate all of the jawing though, right? I think the jawing is at times completely independent of the actual accuracy of the call, right? I think that often managers are just they're trying to make a point not only to the umpire but to their guys. And I don't think they stop trying to make points to their guys about having their back just because all of a sudden we have greater precision in strike calls. If anything, I think we will continue to yell at umpires in a way that will uh, eventually read as mean-spirited because they're not going to be making right. the ball and strike calls and they're just going to be like, it is not me, it is that. It'll, it'll be like, it was the, the in the fall league in 19 when they first yes. broke this out and Geraldo Perdomo argued a, a pitch at the plate yes. and the ump pointed upstairs and then he yes. kind of like... Threw his hands up at the computer. Yeah. Yes. That was great. <laughs> I, I enjoyed I am not recalling who the batter is now, but I, I do remember being there to, to watch someone literally flip off the mm. track man unit at Salt River in that in that fall league being like, okay. so yeah, I don't I don't think we're gonna we like yelling at people. It's I don't know. It's a yeah, weird cultural fascination. I, I just that think we have. I, I think we're limiting the number of times. Like already, I've heard the complaints. And this is now going back more than a decade, right? Since we've had instant replay, but the that 
the only thing that you can argue or really get heated about is balls and strikes. Yeah. So now if you're starting to take away some of those pivotal pitches where, you know, the, the one, one or the, say the two, one pitch that ends up, you're changing the complexity of an at bat. Like it doesn't give you that chance to have that as a release valve. Now, maybe is that, is that good or bad? I don't know, but I mean, it is part of, this is, this is something I've actually, clearly I've been thinking a lot about lately because there are a lot of people that I hear from, who miss umpire player umpire manager arguments from yeah. you know decades past and if we're spending more time it certainly seems like we're spending more time being like listen this is an entertainment industry right and we need to entertain the audience are we getting it wrong by trying to litigate this too much by not allowing there to be more disagreements is that part of the entertainment you know are are those things that are you know just like machismo boiling over part mm-hmm. of the reason why we watch interesting interesting i don't know i'll i i'm going to have to think about that though i still maintain that guys will find a way to yell but it won't have quite the same flavor that it does now seemingly yeah okay let's take this one from listener shyam shyam i hope i'm pronouncing your name correctly what if instead of separate nine inning games we kept score across the entire three to four game (laughs) series each individual game in a series would count as a round with the preceding game's final score carried forward to the start of the next game the team with the highest score at the end of the entire series would be declared the winner i.e and and here we have a a, an example round one dodgers five giants zero Round two, Dodgers won, Giants zero. So the Dodgers at this point lead six to zero. Round three, Dodgers zero, Giants seven. And the Giants would win that series with a one-run advantage. If the home team was winning in this scenario on a given day, they'd still hit in the bottom of the ninth. This would eliminate a lot of extra innings baseball and make rain delays less consequential. People probably wouldn't tune in until the last day, but the potential for final drama would be massive, as swinging a series would be much more consequential to a team's overall record than just a single game. This would be similar to test cricket, where both teams get to bat twice through the order across five days. I mean, we found a way to get the Jays to the playoffs, right? (laughs) Right. It is It is uh, striking to me that in this year where there are teams missing from postseason action that I would like to see and that just barely missed, it seems more appealing than it might in another year. <laughs> Do you really think it would have positively impacted the Mariners? No, not them. They're weird and chaotic. I meant the Blue Jays. Oh, okay. <laughs> I no, I don't I don't think um I don't think that when you're sporting a negative run differential at the end of the season that there's much that can be done to improve your postseason chances other than being better at baseball. Well, but, but but I think that there's that, that element like so like I think about this with Baltimore in twelve and I, I I did more research on this ten years ago than I have on on this year's Mariners team, but that was a team that like their run differential, their negative run differential for most of the season was basically chalked up to like four series. Like they got thumped by Texas a couple of times, right? And like that, that ended up having a huge impact on them. And that was before they got the rotation figured out. And that was when bad Jake Arrieta was pitching right before he was good Jake Arrieta. And then he was whatever Jake Arrieta is now that they, they really like, they were outscored by something like 70 or 80 runs over the course of like four series or five series. And, and they were winning all their other series. And so did that, you know, have an impact on their run differential. Now, overall, they ended up in a positive number for the season, but like, could that be the case with, with the Mariners had they lost like those series to Houston and it just been counted as a series because they were getting 
thumped, would they have right. had a better record overall? I don't think it's going to happen. It would happen because we just love the individual game-to-game competition. And quite frankly, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I love baseball is the, yeah. the the grind of it. But that idea of you know compiling points over the course of, of three performances is interesting. I just think that you would be playing a 27-inning game in the end versus, right. <laughs> versus playing like three nine-inning ones. Yeah. It would be interesting to see what this would do to sort of how pitchers are used, although I don't know that it would change the answer all that much. But it would be interesting to see, you know, if you get into a game where you're, you know, sort of in that final game and it's decisive of the series, does it move guys around at all? I don't think we would ever do this, but um, there is a part of me that appeals to sort of underlying metrics that is tempted by uh, an approach that that would perhaps better reward those teams that are, are good over the course of an entire series. But I agree. It won't happen, but it's an interesting idea. I think the other thing is it would further it would further reduce the reliance on starting pitching yeah. because you would have to get them out at the first sign of trouble, right? right. You've got to you're trying to play over the course of three days to prevent the the most amount of runs possible. So how do you do that? And and I think the team construction would be really interesting too because you would be like, what if you decided that you took run prevention to a greater extreme than some teams have now? Like that right. that's the way you focused on it. It was like, listen, we're just not going to let them score. We're going to try and and you know out shoot them 10 to 9 over the course of three days the entire time. We don't yeah. need that much offense because we can be very, very good at run prevention. I think that would be really interesting as part of it too. Yeah, you get some very stingy teams that took that approach. It won't happen, but it's interesting, I think, is like the general theme of Effectively Wild. <laughs> okay. I picked this one just because you you sure did see a, a, a lot of a, a lot of players play for the Diamondbacks this year, some of whom were quite young. This comes from listener Austin, who says, hey, y'all, I posted this in the Effectively Wild Facebook group, and some folks said I should send it along to you. So here it is. The broadcast just mentioned, this was um, after, I believe, the, the Rays' first postseason game. The Rays players often adjust well to the majors and aren't intimidated by the bright lights. It got me thinking, the Trop is kind of a quad A stadium in terms of fans. What if their lack of attendance is a competitive advantage for acclimating rookies the Rays famously starting some very inexperienced starters in their in their ALDS I answered this question separately over email but Mike as someone who has seen a lot of pitching up and down over the course of this last year just because of injuries and an environment that we might call muted in <laughs> in chase what is your impression of the effect that environment tends to have on guys I, I mean I think it certainly does for some, yeah. but I don't know that the environment was the reason why Shane Baz struggled in game two, but right. the environment didn't seem to affect Shane McClanahan in game one. And his postseason experience had been limited to what 11,000 fans in a world series game before that, right? Which right. is basically a triple A audience. So I don't want to thoroughly discount it because I do think that it, it it's going to be variable that for some people it's going to impact them. There are some guys that really do struggle when you put the third deck on, but I think some of that can be really overstated. I think, Specifically with Tampa Bay, and and it's it's interesting that you brought the Diamondbacks into this because they just made some coaching changes. And one of the things that they want to do is be better at having a cohesive message 
from the major leagues to AAA. So that when those guys are coming up and down and going back and forth, that they're hearing the same things, right? And I think that's one of the things that the Rays have really done well in terms of building their player development is having this cohesive language, theory, everything from the top down. I think the best player development organizations have done that. I think the Astros do it. I think the Dodgers do it. I would be shocked if the Giants didn't do it because I think that that's, I mean, we're we're checking all the same people, right? Boston is going to be the same way. And this isn't like necessarily reinventing the wheel because I think that there are some organizations that have had their manager and their their front office, you know, build their major league ideas and what their terms are and try to get it to trickle down. But this is a different commitment to it. Yeah. And so I think I think that to me that's more where it is and why they have success. That and and like we're also in this stretch of time where the Rays are bringing up just some impressively damn talented players. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have a stable of guys that throw ninety eight still, right. right? Even with this not being as good a pitching team as they were a year ago, maybe. Yeah. But like they they still have supremely talented players that have refined a lot of their pitch mix in the minor leagues. That it doesn't matter what the crowd is because yeah. they're just overwhelming. Well, and and my answer to Austin, I don't want to discount the effect that like feeling nervous at work can have on your performance, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I think we'd be silly to say it doesn't matter at all. I tend to think that it's more whether or not it, it negatively impacts guys than, than players being, you know, particularly excellent when the, the lights are brightest. I, I, I don't know that that's quite how human psychology works, but I do think that the underlying skill of the player and sort of the, the broader player development system that they're coming up in matters more. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, a big league quality slider to make you feel uh, humble, even mm-hmm. if the, the crowd is quiet and accommodating. So I don't think that it's the sort of thing that makes a huge huge difference i think the other the other things that you pointed to are probably what's pushing the rays towards success more than anything else i I mean i heard i heard that a bunch last year too about rookies having success because there were no fans in the ballpark well that's why it seems like like, did you buy that when you heard it no i mean again i don't think that it doesn't matter at all but i do think it's the sort of thing that you acclimate to really really quickly and you know it's not as if uh if you're a if you're playing in triple a depending on where you are it's not like there's no one there right those games can be well attended so i don't know that i buy that as an explanation i think that the sort of underlying talent of the prospect is likely to be the thing that sort of makes the difference there more than anything and you know postseason jitters are pretty well overcome after the first inning or two so okay Finally, I guess while we're on the subject of rookies getting acclimated, we'll close with a step last meet a major leaguer combo. This 
This is inspired by an email from listener Francesca who writes, I was listening to the Royals radio broadcast of Friday night's Mariners-Royals game, so clearly this was a little while ago, in which John Hesley made his Major League debut. Side note, according to a Ronnie Gisarli tweet, this marked the first time in Major League history that five pitchers from the same draft class, 2018, made a start for the team that drafted them in the same season. So that would be Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubik, and Helsley. Just before first pitch, Denny Matthews said, and by the way, I've seen 1,227 debuts. I keep track. This statement was followed by a joke from Steve Stewart, which Denny ignored. For those who aren't familiar with Denny, his humor is very dry, so I'm not quite sure if he was joking or not. So the Royals and Mariners set to play momentarily. The 2018 amateur draft, the Royals drafted a lot of pitchers early. Brady Singer, Daniel Lynch, Jackson Core, Chris Bubich. And a guy named Jonathan Bolin out with Tommy John surgery taken on the first day. Bolin was doing well at double-A this year. The pitcher tonight, Jonathan Heasley, was taken in the 13th round. And he'll be making his debut tonight. Kyle Isbell, who's in right field tonight, was taken out of UNLV in the third round of that same 2018 draft. We hope that Jonathan can get off to a good start as he begins his big league career tonight. Called into service as Brady Singer, who was scheduled to start tonight, winds up on the injured list. And as we turn it over to the voice of the Royals, Denny Matthews. Denny, I'm sure you've lost count. I'm sure it's hundreds of maybe thousands of Major League debuts you've seen. When I think of a Major League debut, the first word I think of is nerves. Every time, it never fails. And they have to control that as well as their pitches. And by the way, I have seen 1,227 <laughs> debuts. I keep track. Yeah, and you've got to memorize too, I'm sure. Denny has been the Royals radio broadcaster since the Royals' very first game back in 1969. He stopped traveling a few years back, unsure when exactly, and hadn't necessarily traveled on every road trip before that either, but we'll still, we're still talking full or partial seasons for 53 years now. So he's seen every debut, Royal or otherwise, at Coffin Stadium or Municipal Stadium, plus every Royal who debuted on the road for probably 40 years, as well as every player who debuted against the Royals when the Royals were on the road for 40 years. I have no idea whether debuts he broadcast from home during the 2020 season should or would count or not. So do we think he was joking or has Denny Matthews actually kept track of the major league debuts he has seen? So we put this question to frequent stat blast consultant Ryan, who compiled a list of all the players who have debuted since 1901 with their debut date, debut team, and debut opponent. I'll share that list in the Facebook group. If we look at all the players who have debuted since the beginning of the 1969 season, it seems that there were 350 player debuts for the Royals and 329 against the Royals through the end of the 2020 season. Back of the napkin math would verify this. By Ryan's count, there have been about 9,500 debuts since 1969, and there have been, on average, 27.7 teams in the league over that span, so we would expect any given team to debut about 343 players. So it sounds like Matthews was exaggerating a tab, but, you know, it's an impressive total nonetheless. <laughs> and if you're curious about Helsley, the 24-year-old was originally a 13th round pick in that 2018 draft class out of Oklahoma State. He ranked 29th on the Royals' preseason prospect list with Eric Longenhagen saying Helsley was a draft-eligible sophomore who simply didn't pitch all that well in college. The sort of player draft models are only on if they incorporate pitch data. Helsley's slider spin rates are plus plus. Or if a scout likes the player despite mediocre performance, which was the case here. 
Helsley moved from the Oklahoma State bullpen to the rotation as a sophomore, but still walked a batter every other inning and gave up more hits than anyone with his quality of stuff should give up in college. Even though his breaking ball spin rates are so high, I still saw a 40-grade, low-80s curveball this spring and think Helsley's future is as a fastball and change-up middle reliever. So Helsley posted a 3-3-3 ERA and 4-5-9 FIP in 22 AA games this season. He was called up on September 17th to pitch against Seattle after the aforementioned Brady Springer went on the IL with right upper arm inflammation. He pitched four innings and gave up four earned runs on two two-run shots from Jared Kelnick in a game the Mariners would win 6-2, to two, though he also struck out Kyle Seeger and Jake Fraley. So thank you to Francesca for that question and to Ryan for his assistance with the stat blast. And uh, we have now met another major leaguer. It's cool. I actually didn't doubt Denny's totals there. I was like, oh, that could, when you've been it broadcasting like a, for 50 some it odd It seemed years, like a feasible right? number. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it definitely seemed like a feasible number. And as I said, an impressive number nonetheless. Whenever you've been in the game for 53 years, you're just going to have seen so many guys. It's just like the the well of, of perspective and sort of knowledge you have and experience with the game over that longest stretch is just really humbling to me, candidly. <laughs> All right, we will leave it there so that folks can try to listen to this before today's playoff games get going. Mike, can you let us all know where we can listen to you for the rest of the postseason? I will be on MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM, and I will be uh, doing our on-site coverage of the American League Championship Series and for the first time the World Series this year, which I'm super excited about. So That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Well, you should definitely check out Mike for those stretches, and you can find him on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, my pleasure, Meg. It's good to be with you. That'll do it for today. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, keep us ad-free, and get access to a few special perks. Michael Santana, Chris Paskoff, Gavin Rodkey, Jesse Kraler, and Martha Coons. Speaking of perks, if you're a supporter at the $10 a month and up level, one of your supporter benefits is access to two Patreon-exclusive postseason livecasts featuring me, possibly Ben, and several of our baseball friends. We'll be ready to announce the first of those soon, so keep your eyes peeled for a message from me about it in the next few days. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for us coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I'll be back later this week with new guest co-hosts and new episodes. Until then, enjoy the Division Series. I'll let it all fall off Well, you were talking so to pop You talking quite a lot The opinions that I do not give The opinions I ain't got So let it drop Let it all drop Let it all drop Let it all fall off